morning. Welcome to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Iberly. Has anyone ever thought about what it would be like to be a cop? You've never done the job. Have you thought about it? Interesting. A lot of life experiences, a lot of great stories to tell. You get a lot of respect, but you also get a lot of disrespect. The person I have on today has been called Super Cop, the toughest cop in the country, Dirty Harry, which I don't think is really a fair one. But he has lived the life of a police officer. He has done it all. My guest is the most decorated policeman in Philadelphia history, 70 accommodations. He has worked it all, started as a beat patrolman, narcotics, special task forces, hostage negotiator, homicide, chief of police, Middleton, Pennsylvania, Bucks County, Portland, Maine. Now he is the superintendent of the Upper Darby Police Department. My guest is Michael Chipwood. Michael, thanks for coming on. Good morning, John. How are you? Thank oh, you. Oh, man, I appreciate it. Sorry, I'm kind of <laughs> trying to catch my breath. We did the crossover here. Things were falling. Everything's kind of dropping around. But we'll get it together real quick here. Uh, let's start off with some, you know, your background. You're born in uh, South Philly, Oregon Avenue. Um, you grow up there. You go to Catholic school. You always knew you wanted to be a cop, didn't you? I mean, that was just your, your role, nothing else. When I was in seventh grade, I knew I wanted to be a police officer. Well, let me ask it this way, then. Do you think that you can create a cop, or are you just born to this work? I think it's a combination of both. I mean, I think I truly think it is. I mean, you have to have a passion, in my opinion, to help people. And I don't care who you are, where you come from, male, female, black, white, yellow, uh, it doesn't matter. You need to have the passion that you want to help people. And policing, I believe most men and women that go into police work go there because they want to, they want to help their community. They want to help people. Now, you've written the book, Tough Cop, Mike Shitwood versus the Scumbags. I like the title. <laughs> uh, now, what got me, though, is you're holding the uh, AKA assault rifle on the, on the cover of the book. Right. Now, you're a pretty controversial person to begin with. Was this your idea to do the cover shot this way, or was that a battle within uh, uh, the powers to be, saying, "Hey, maybe we shouldn't do it this way"? Or, you know, was this your call? The the fellow who who wrote the book, uh, I collaborated with him, Howard Gullen. It was his idea, and the uh, uh, publishing company, so they came up with the idea. So I said, "Sure, why not?" Now I do with guns every day. So. What I like about it, it's a play on a couple things with you, though. You didn't carry a gun for the longest time uh, when you served in the Philadelphia Police Department, which I want to get into later. That's fascinating to me. And another thing, and I don't think anyone would know this about you, and I found it actually shocking myself, you are totally against the use of assault rifles, meaning you do not believe the average gun owner, citizen, should own an assault rifle, correct? Uh, that's correct. I mean, but let me let me expand on it a little bit. I, I think that people have a right to to bear firearms, and I'm I'm a proponent of of that right. However, when you look at these multiple magazine, multiple rounds in magazines, and these weapons that uh, you know are really weapons of mass destruction, then then I have a problem with it. So, from that perspective. Um, uh, I, I am against, you know, these types of assault weapons, uh, you know, that can fire multiple rounds of ammunition. Um, I think that we're seeing so much violence in our streets and our communities that uh, I think it's it's important to be able to speak out and say what you feel. You know, I may be in a minority when I say that, but if you live in a more urban area, you're gonna you're gonna feel that because you see the violence attributed to guns, especially these assault type weapons. You know, it's interesting when I read that because back in 94, I had recently left the military, and I was actually selling weapons, and a lot of them were assault weapons. They were legal. I was working for a company that had a federal license to do so, and I remember when the assault ban came in, and I remember feeling good about that, which tipped me off very quickly that I do not belong selling weapons right. if this is how I feel, and I quickly got out of that line of work, but I have to agree with you. I'm... It's not that you're trying to, I guess, squash anyone's rights, but the simple question is, do you really need to have that SKS Chinese assault rifle, the AK-47, uh, anything that fires 
like you said, 10 rounds or more unless you're involved in law enforcement. But you, as you found out, and you know, the NRA, extremely powerful. Very powerful. I mean, there's not, I mean, they, they fund everything, so it's just the way it is. But I want to commend you for doing that because that, I didn't expect to read that. And I thought that took a lot of guts to take them on because really it's almost a no-win situation. Well, the good thing is I'm not running for political office, so I don't have to worry about them. <laughs> well, maybe you should have ran. I want to get into that later. You know, I did that in Maine, the same thing. <laughs> I, I, I'll tell you, though, but what I like uh, is the directness. And I think, and you, and, you know, you can tell me yourself, obviously, a lot of people say they want a direct person. A lot of people say they want someone that's going to put it on the line and say, hey, this is the way it is. But I think when it comes right down to it, it either intimidates them or ticks them off. Uh, yeah, 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 John. I think I think I'll, I'll, I'll give you fifty percent on that one, okay. and, uh, and I'll expand on that one. Uh, I, I I'm out all the time, mm. and I can walk down the street. I can go into a diner or a restaurant. I can ride the L to go down to Philadelphia, and I can't tell you. During the course of a day, how many people come up to me and want to shake my hand, tell me what a great job I do. Uh, we really appreciate your your out there being in front to protect us. Um, so, I mean, you know, I always tell people, crime is a community problem. And the more intelligence people have about what's going on in a community, the better it is for everybody. It's got to be a collaboration of community members law enforcement, uh, different organizations that work together to keep the community safe. And I don't care whether you're in Los Angeles, California, or Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. That's that's the issue. And um, so my visibility, my pushing the issue, I mean, there's a method to my madness, you know, oh, it's to, yes. to let people know what's going on. And people appreciate it. I see it every day. I hear it every day. Do I, excuse my expression, piss people off. Yeah, yeah, I, I know that. I mean, I would love everybody to say they love my chit, but it don't happen. But overwhelmingly, the majority of the community want to know what's going on, and and they're they're glad that you have men and women who are willing to put themselves on the line to keep their community safe. But see, I see your personality as a positive. Now, maybe a lot of your superiors didn't. Uh, maybe other people were intimidated by it. I'd have to go. It probably goes that way as well. Yep. But my thought is the kind of person you are, you bring the people out. I would have to assume over the years you were able to get people to tell you things, meaning this don't snitch, don't tell policy that's out on the streets these days. I believe you were able to work through those things because of your personality being as strong as it is, but also the caring side that seems to come out. I, I agree with that. I mean, it's it's, a, it's it, it falls into my my philosophy in life. It took me a long time to learn it. I mean, I didn't <laughs> I didn't learn this following statement quickly and easily. But over the years, the school of hard knocks, I learned it and I practice it and I preach it. Treat everybody the way you want yourself and your family treated. 98% of the time, 98% of the time, you'll win that situation. There's going to be 2%, doesn't matter what you do, and that's what you're trained to deal with. Uh, and it works. I mean, every I've been a police chief for 30 years now in different uh, three different locations, and everybody I hire, I tell them the same thing. Treat everybody, because when police get in trouble, it's usually because they start the issue because of their attitude, because of their uh, interaction with whoever they're dealing with, and it goes downhill real quick. But if you treat people decently, I've found that the majority of the times, people respect that. And I don't care who they are. I don't care what they did. You treat them decently. I and agree with that. Even if it's someone that's a criminal, yeah, absolutely. you treat them with, with humanity, and you're going to get more out of the situation. Now, for you, though, see, I... I I see you and my father in a lot of ways, so, so bear with me on this. I see a tough guy who grew up in a tough neighborhood. Your father, as you, you, know, you speak lovingly in the book about him, but he was a man of his times, much like my father. Tough man, but a fair man. You towed the line or you got your ass kicked. That's just the way it worked. You know that. Now, I think it's easier for someone like yourself to have that tough guy 
I can't even say attitude. That's just who you are. But then be able to find that, I don't want to say softer side, but maybe a deeper side, a side that allows people to come in and you give a little of yourself back and you expose who you are, your weaknesses. I think people come away with more respect with that. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. I'll give you an example. I can go on a drug raid. You know, break yeah. the door down, have a search warrant, get in there, lock up people, walk away, and 20 minutes later, I'm in a school reading the first graders. And, and, first, and second that, graders. Isn't I mean, that and great? That's, that's, and either one is important to me. And I think that's great to be able to have that flip side of your personality. I really do. I think it allows you or allows people who can do that to really communicate with a broader spectrum of people. Right. I really do. I, I think that's in the line of work you've been in. I think it gives you or has given you the respect of a lot of the uh, people you arrested. Correct. I, I, I is exactly one hundred percent. Like I, I told you, I, I do the L back and forth to Philadelphia instead of driving in town. So if I meet somebody in town, I'm I jump on the L, uh, Marcus Street L. And I, there have been numerous times where people come up to me and stop me. And say, are you Mike Chitwood? I said, yeah, you locked me up 35 years ago. <laughs> True. And I just want to say thank you. I've served time in, in the federal prison, state prison, county prison. And he said, I always remember the way you treated me. You treated me like a, like a human being. Oh, how, do you, how do you get that? I mean, that's, that's at 69th and Market, you know? I mean, give me a break. <laughs> we're going to roll into a break, Mike, and we're going to come back, and i got a lot of the stuff I want to get to. You're listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest, the most highly decorated police officer in Philadelphia history, Mike Chitwood. Welcome back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Tough Cop Michael Chitwood. He has written the book, Tough Cop, Mike Chitwood versus the Scumbags. you got to love that one. You can find the book on Amazon.com, CameoBooks.com, or Barnes & Noble. And I'm going to tell you, it's a tremendous read. It's a very fast read because you get hooked up in it. And uh, there's, if you're from the area, uh, the Philadelphia area, and you remember... The 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and I'm not that old, but there's a lot of great stories in there, and there's a lot of stuff for me, Mike, i got to be honest. It was like a history uh, lesson in a lot of ways for someone with my age group. Now, for you, I mean, you, you become a cop in 1964. You're at that cutting edge of the 60s, of the problems within the races, the race riots, the drugs that are coming in. I mean, you picked the best time to become a cop. <laughs> I mean, you really did. You've got Frank Rizzo at the time. <laughs> it was perfect. you got Frank Rizzo at the time, who will, who is the uh, chief of the Philadelphia Police Department. He'll go on to be a two-time mayor. Would have been a third time, but unfortunately he passed away in July of 91. Uh, but for you... I mean, this really is baptism by fire in a lot of ways. You come out, I think it was April of 64. Uh, one of the first things you're involved with, unfortunately, you and your partner, John Dillon, are involved in a shooting, uh, justified. Uh, unfortunately, the uh, perpetrator passed away. But then it begins. You've got the 64 race riots in August 1964 in North Philadelphia. What my listeners need to know is that coincides almost perfectly with the beginning of the 1964 Phillies collapse. And some people have said, well, maybe that was the beginning of it. But I want to know, you're on that scene for, you know, as a rookie, all this is going down around you. How did you feel? I mean, did you feel like this is where I belong? Not cocky, but this is where I belong. Well, at the time... I was 20 years of age, and I was working out at the 18th District at 55th and Pine, and I was working 4 to 12. And I remember hearing, you know, that was the buzz in all the all the radio room and uh, of, of what was occurring up in North Philadelphia on Columbia Avenue. Then it was known as Columbia Avenue, and now it's Cecil Meach. Yes, Cecil B. Moore. Yeah. Uh, Boulevard. But, uh, and, you 
know, I mean, I really, I wasn't old enough to vote. I wasn't old <laughs> enough to drink, but I was a police officer, and I was there to, out there to save the world. You know, that was my philosophy. And the next day, we were assigned up to that particular area, and then we were put in cars, and we were riding around, and I, I was assigned with three more experienced uh, officers, uh, and I was kind of like, uh, this was a learning experience for me. The first thing, besides being afraid, I was afraid, okay. because I had never been involved in anything like that. And the second thing that I was amazed is why the community members were destroying their own community. I Thank mean, you. I'm 20 years old. Yeah. I had no idea. They're burning buildings. They're uh, firing guns. They're throwing rocks at the police. And we were the enemy. And that's not why I took the job. I took the job to help people and, you know, be there and uh, – uh, again, I didn't know anything, and so I'm 20 years old, and it was a, it was a real quick learning experience. Later on in life, I found out the underlying issues, you know, poverty, lack of jobs, lack of education, you know, all those social issues that at a 20-year-old kid coming out of, a, you know, a, a lower to middle-class neighborhood, I had no idea. I mean, I never saw anything like it. And uh, so it was It was a great learning experience. And, you know, every, even now, today, if I would go through there, some of the areas have never never regained the, 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 the what they were 50 years ago. And that's, uh, that's sad, especially when you get out. I mean, Temple's done a lot of building, but you get out into that uh, Ridge Avenue and further out on the, on the Cecil uh, be more Boulevard, you can see some of the, the deprivation and tragedy that occurred back in uh, August of 64. So it, it was uh, it was quite an – and then what they did is I was assigned to the 22nd District, which, which bordered uh, Columbia Avenue for, I was at, I guess, about two and a half years. So from like 20 to 22, I was either walking a beat or driving a car and uh, – it was, a, it was a quick learning experience of, of what life was really about back in those days. Well, you know, you're right about how the area still is. Uh, I originate from the Northeast. My family does. I end up growing up, though, down in Long Beach Island in South Jersey. But some of my work uh, takes me into some of these areas. And I was out in the Logan area not that long ago. There's a bunch of homes that need to be demolished. Uh, that's part of some of the work I'm involved with. And... Uh, I went with some uh, people I work with, uh, African-Americans, not a place a white guy could get into by himself. You know that? Right. I made the big mistake of uh, it was an abandoned building. I walked right in, and what I did was went, go right through the floor. My right leg literally went through the floor mm -hmm. up to my groin. And what I learned from that, this hole was cut out on purpose. Uh, it was meant to keep... People from coming in the home, even though abandoned, was being used uh, for drugs. I believe there was dog fighting going on. This was a shock to me. Right. Had never seen this before. I came to find out later that a lot of firemen will not go into these homes when they're firing because of these holes that are cut out. Sure. And I, I came away, and you know, it's funny, uh, not exactly at that moment, but later on when I was at home soaking myself, I decided I have to reach out to... Mike Chitwood, and I need to get more of these stories because it was so foreign to me. And I was trying to explain this to my 16-year-old daughter, suburban kid who just didn't get it. And I guess that leads me to a question concerning your own children. Now, you've been married to your wife, Liz, for many, many years. God bless her. I assume it's been a ride with you. <laughs> <laughs> I have to assume that. Uh, your son is uh, chief of police at Daytona Beach. That must be an exciting place to be a chief of the police. Uh, it is. He's been <laughs> there for almost eight years, yeah, over it, eight years. It has to be. You guys thought about doing a father-son tandem and uh, teaming uh, up? You know, it's there? kind of funny, John. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I would love to be able to have he and I. We we talk about this, and I the argument is <laughs> who would be the chief and who would be the deputy. I said, well, I'm, I'm senior, so I would have to be me. <laughs> and he's at the point now where I call him for advice. So. Uh, it's uh, it's kind of an interesting uh, document, and uh, the funny thing is, he didn't want to be a cop. He did not want to be a police officer. He I can remember him telling me when he was probably twenty, twenty-one years old. Uh, 
he had dropped out of college and uh, he was working down at the, the food center in some fish uh, <laughs> fish market area and he said he didn't want to be a cop and I said why I mean if you're not going to go to college it's a great career it's a great opportunity for you he said I've seen how you come home or how you came home and I've seen you know what you had to go through in certain times and he said I would never want to do that and a couple of years later, you know, he went to the New Jersey State Police. He lasted a day, he quit. Then he went to SEPTA, and then he went into Philly, and uh, the rest is history. I mean, he just uh, just uh, learned and uh, got his education, and uh, you know, now he's he's in a he's in a great place. Well, you know, for yourself, I what are the three, if you had to say, your three biggest skills as a street cop? I mean, I mean, I'm encompassing all that, a homicide, hostage negotiations. What are the three skills that you think got you through your career, three skills you could not have done without? I, I learned quickly from people that I worked with. I always worked with much more experienced officers as a young kid all the way up. I mean, now I'm the oldest guy around, but <laughs> as, as a young officer. So learning the ability to learn quick and have those people that mentored me in a direction that allowed me to succeed. There were a lot of pitfalls. There were a lot of ups and downs, and there were a lot of mistakes that I made. But at the end of the day, I believe I came out, so that's the first thing. The second thing is I gained and learned an innate ability to interact with people, listen to what they have to say, if I can help them, I help them directly. If not, I can advise them where to go to get that help. And then third, the third is, is the compassion for my fellow man. I mean, I learned that, uh, you know, people deserve the right to have, uh, and it took me a long time to learn this, quality <laughs> of life. Quality of life. You know, what is quality of life? Describe quality of life. And that's the ability to raise your family to recreate, to walk down the street, to feel safe in your environment. And those are the three things that I learned that I think have, have played a major role in, in any successes that I have in life. It's interesting when you say quality of life, though, Mike, because you've seen it. You can have a block full of very nice people, people just trying to get on with their lives. Then you got a house full of jackasses on the corner or right in the middle of it all, and they control the whole block out right. of fear. And that don't snitch, don't tell mentality, that must drive you crazy. Well, it does. It does because it's, it's, it makes your job very, very difficult. I mean, you know, I've, I've worked in some of the nicest neighborhoods that anybody could work in, and I worked in some of the worst neighborhoods that you, you, that you could be in. And I find a common thread. The common thread is the people want to have that quality of life. It doesn't matter where they come from. It doesn't matter what their socioeconomic status is. It doesn't matter what their ethnic background is. But there's that handful, a handful of what I call scumbags that try and destroy that environment. And when people say, don't snitch, don't tell, and somebody got shot or somebody's selling drugs, that's impacting where you live. It's it's not impacting where I live because if they're selling dope next to me, they get raided, you know? <laughs> but this is this is the driving force, you know, where you want to you you want to be all things to all people. But if people aren't willing to step forward and 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 collaborate with the law enforcement community across the board, then you know you're only destroying your own neighborhood that you live in. You know, looking back, some of your combinations, and we'll go to the first one. Uh, you saved a little girl in a fire. Uh, You're hanging out the window to get her so the mother could drop her into you, and then. Fire department came along and uh, took care of the mother. Your partner was holding you by your, your belt. And one of the things I read, and I read it throughout the different combinations, things I was able to look up, you always gave credit first to everyone else around you. And I think that's key because I think they're, again, human nature, probably jealousy of who you are, uh, just how you come across, that bigger-than-life thing. But you always honestly gave credit to the people around you first. I think that's a tremendous skill right there. That's leading people. Uh, I, you know, and, I, and I've always been lucky. I mean, even today, John, I mean, I can sit in a meeting and I can say, okay, I got this great idea. We're going to do this. And then I run it by 
a half a dozen of my key staff, and I walk away and say, man, that was really dumb. I mean, these guys are really good. They got, uh, uh, you know, what they say or what they're directing me to do is like, that's better than anything I thought of. I always tell people that I have always been lucky that I've always worked with very, very good people my entire career, whether I was a foot patrolman in 1964 or whether I'm police chief in 2015. And one of the things that I always tell people, there are people who are much more uh, academically brighter than I am, technologically more skillful and more knowledgeable than I am, and I'm not afraid to admit it. I yeah, but that's that good, very, very few. There's very, very few that got Ph.D. in street, and I think that that's what I got. I got a Ph.D. in street, and that's the thing that allows me to be or to enjoy the successes that I enjoy or have enjoyed over, the, over my life. Mike, I think it's more than that. When we come back from the break, I'm going to tell you why I think you're the complete package. You're listening to Life on Edit. I'm your host, John Aberly. Today, my guest is Mike Chipwood. He has written the book, Tough Cop. Mike Chickwood versus the scumbags. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Aberly. Today, my guest is Mike Chipwood. He has written the book Tough Cop. Mike Chipwood versus the Scumbags. You can find Mike's book on Amazon.com, CameoBooks.com, and Barnes and & Noble. And again, it is a great read. And if you're from the Philadelphia area, it's a great look back on history. Now, Mike, before we broke, we were talking about the different skills. I think you're the package in the sense that, as you said a few moments ago, you have the street smarts. You know the streets. You can handle yourself. You also have the compassion which is a hard combination to find. And then over the years, you went out and you formally educated yourself to put you in position to be able to handle yourself the administrative ends of being a you know chief of a, a high-end suburban area, Middletown, Bucks County, I know the area well, and then going up to what I call the little big city, Portland, Maine. And at the time, there was a lot of shift, shifting going on, a lot of major crime was coming into that area. So I think you've been the package. I think you've done a great job in putting it all together. I know it hasn't been easy for you, though, was it? Uh, no, it wasn't. I mean, it, it, it wasn't. And you know, I can remember my first police chief job. I was a homicide detective in Philadelphia one day, and I was a police chief the next day. And uh, I, I reached out to a friend of mine, and I said, what do I do now? I got the job. <laughs> And the advice given to me was find the smartest people in the organization, bring them in, let them do their job, and just thank them every day. <laughs> and I did, and it worked. I've been doing it for 30 years. So. But you don't have an ego, though, in that area. No, That's no. the key to it, though. No, I mean, I, I, I told you earlier, there, there are, there's a lot of talent in policing in America today. And uh, the, the, the thing is, you got to be able to know who they are and take advantage of it. You know, I mean, I look at Upper Darby. I mean, there's a lot of talented people here who are, do a great job, you know. What I found interesting, and it seemed to fit you perfect, hostage negotiator. Back in the, in the 70s, early 80s with the Philadelphia Police Department, did the Philly Department come to you for that, or was that something you just went in, there was an opening for it, and you took it? It's something that I read a lot about coming out of the New York City Police Department. Uh, and as a result of reading their successes in dealing with people in crisis, I went and uh, took numerous courses throughout the country. I, I was down in Florida a couple times and took a lot of the learnings, a lot of reading uh, away from how to deal with people in crisis without them being killed. And, uh, you know, I, I, at one point in time in my career, I mean, it was like every other week I was involved in some type of high-profile thing, and almost every one of them was a successful conclusion, whether it was a barricaded person or, or a hostage situation. And it was all about interacting and trying to get the, into the 
person's psyche that's in in that particular crisis. And you know what what police officers deal with today, majority over and over again, is people in some type of crisis. Um, and I think it's important that officers learn that. Uh, crisis technique of, of dealing with an issue instead of shooting somebody or, uh, you know, breaking the door down and ripping them out to uh, see if you can't negotiate. Uh, you know, I mean, God forbid at the end, you have, you have to, sometimes you do have to employ tactics. But I think overall, the containing negotiate philosophy in policing today when, when you're dealing with, you know, somebody who's a criminal and or somebody who's in some type of uh, mental health crisis, is, is, uh, it works. What's the first thing you had to do, Mike, when you got on a scene with a hostage situation? What was that uh, one thing you needed? First thing you, you do is make sure it's secure. Got you that, yeah. The yeah, first thing you do is you make it secure. Whoever, if, if, if in fact it's a gunman and he or she is holding hostages, then you got to make sure that they don't have an escape route. That's the first thing you mm-hmm. got to do. Then you got to find out what they want. What's your, what's your beef? Did you get caught and you were holding people? The, is it domestic violence? You know, you got to find out. And then the next thing you do, you try and get as much intelligence as, a, as you can about the person that you're dealing with. Criminal record check, any family members close by, what's his issue? And, you know, you don't do that. You're negotiating, mm-hmm. so you're just talking. But other people are doing that and then supplying you with that information. So you secure the scene. You get as much intelligence about the uh, individual that you're dealing with. And to include why this is happening, you know, why is it occurring, and then just go from there. You know, just keep on talking and see if you. Well, they said uh, going back to the old articles, Philadelphia Magazine and stuff. They said Mike Chitwood, gift of gab, but that's a good thing in this situation. You need to keep that person talking. And would you say that's probably one of the most rewarding aspects of your career? You were able to do that. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, it was, because A, it was tremendously challenging, B, it was dangerous, and then C, when you walked everybody out uh, unhurt, it was, uh, you know, I mean, it was a a feeling of, uh, it was a warm, good feeling. You know, you accomplished something, you saved somebody's life. Now, you worked homicide, and I'm going to bring back one case. I don't think you were completely involved in it, but you're very well known to have been there with it. Uh... The unicorn, Ira Einhorn, mid-70s. Yeah, the guy, weird straight. You know, can you explain to me, you had a chance to meet him, obviously. What was the charisma? What drew people to him? What drew Holly Maddox to him? She was a beautiful young blonde woman. This guy looked like he just walked out of... uh, you know, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Den or something. I couldn't figure this out as I was a kid and I've gotten older. What was it about him? He, 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 you're 100% mm. right. He he was a slob. I mean... He smelled, uh, right? He stunk. Yeah. He smelled. I, I had a chance to read his diaries. So I, I got a little <laughs> bit of a better insight into him. And what he had is he had a tremendous knack, especially in dealing with uh, women, to find somebody who was either coming off a relationship or somebody who was seeking a relationship. And he was a charmer. He had a lot of uh, a gift of gab, and he was able to relate. And they thought he was this, quote, guru. You know, he was uh, a peace. He was anti-war. He was uh, uh, a scholarly-type individual, which is baloney, but that's what he did. And then, you know, some of these major corporations, he was a consultant to them. Yeah. You know the electric company, the phone company back in the back in that time when uh, when we arrested him. But uh, you know he he was just able, and it, it blew my mind away because I would see, I would read, and he would name some of his quests. And back at the time, there were some very very prominent women in no. the community that were. You know, this guy's involved with this guy. And I said, "Wow, that's amazing!" You know, and uh, um, so I mean, that's what it was. He had a, he had an innate act knack to find somebody who was in some type of personal crisis, some type of, of personal crisis that they were they were dealing with. Uh, the men, you know, overwhelming. It was the women. But there were several women that we found where he beat him with a bottle. One Jeez. one lady come out of uh, Washington D.C. was an attorney at the time at a getting ready for trial, and then Holly Maddox, she wanted to end the relationship. In fact, she said to the guy that she was with uh, when he said he was going to burn all her clothes if she didn't come home, 
if I don't come home, he killed me. And sure enough, he did. Yeah, it's a shame uh, that she even came back for the clothing. Yeah, and then, you know, yeah. the sad thing is, I mean, I dealt with her mother and father, and I went down to Tyler, Texas, when we found the body and all that kind of stuff, and just nice people. Eventually, Mom died. Eventually, the father, you know, shot and killed himself. Oh, did he? I didn't know that. Yeah, according to the other Jeez. surviving siblings, he killed himself because of, of what had happened to her and all this kind of stuff. So, Well, what got me about... Einhorn in a lot of ways. Now, I'm, I'm not going to go into the whole steamer suitcase thing. People can read about that. That had to be very traumatic for you, and people can read about that on their own accord. But what, what blew me away is he ends up escaping more or less, just kind of walking away, ends up overseas, ends up in France. And the French take him in like he is the long-lost uh, guru. I think they named a street after the yeah, guy. Am did. I correct? They did. They did. And uh, now you must have followed that case pretty pretty religiously, I would that assume. That was part of my life for 22 years. Yeah. No matter where I went, I would always wind up coming back to Philadelphia, America's Most Wanted, yep. Unsolved Mysteries, different uh, different shows that I would you know be part of because, again, I found the body and had the search warrant typed up. And, uh, you know, he, here's a guy that should have never gotten out on bail. Yeah, you don't get out on bail on a murder case, especially back in in, in those times in the seventies. And he was they were able to get him out on bail. And I remember saying to the DA, I said, "This guy will not go to trial. He will take off because we had him dead. I mean, how do you how do you, how do you say, walk uh, away from that? You know, CIA planted the body there. You know, give me a break." Um, and sure enough, when it come time to trial, we found out he went he went all over Europe, though. He was in England. He was in Ireland. Yeah. He was in France. Eventually, that's where he, he was extradited back from France. But, uh, I mean, he's up in upstate Pennsylvania now. And, you know, well, it, it's just strange that even when the whole thing went down, if I recall correctly, there were prominent politicians who were involved in helping him get Released on bail, if I recall. Absolutely. They testified as character witnesses. And that I was just, in the courtroom, so I can yeah. tell you they were business leaders and political leaders and, and, and religious leaders who came in to testify. He was a man of peace, and he was a wonderful <laughs> individual, and, you know, he could never do anything like this. I'm sitting here like, wow, give me a break. And that's, that's got to be one of the more difficult parts of your job is you're bringing in the criminals, and then you watch the system fail sometimes. Right. right. I mean, that's got to drive you. That would drive it still, me. It still does crazy. today. Yeah. I mean, I, I see you know guys do a home invasion, and then they get the time in served, and they serve one day. You know, time in the twenty three months. Guys are these guys are you know thugs, and 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 who knows what else they are. And but their home, they invade the homes of. Uh, these Asian business people. This just happened the other day. I mean, I was wild. I was furious, and I walk away. I said, "Wait a minute. Uh, am I doing the right thing?" And you know what? I am doing the right thing. It's not fair that some of these um, judges and some of these uh, decisions that are made impact so significantly the majority of the community, and these bums walk away. You know, with a slap on the wrist that just infuriates me, and it's never changed. You know, Mike, we, we roll into another break. When we come back, I want to get into stuff about respect for police officers, uh, different kinds of training, going back and forth. Uh, we're talking with Mike Chipwood today. He has written the book, Tough Cop, Mike Chipwood versus the Scumbags. We'll be back in a few moments. Back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Aberly. The final segment of the show. My guest today has been Tough Cop Mike Chipwood, now the superintendent of police for Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. He has written the book, Tough Cop Mike Chipwood vs. the Scumbags. You can find the book on Amazon.com, uh, CameoBooks.com, and Barnes and Noble. Uh, Mike, did you know Frank Bender? I did. I got the uh, opportunity to interview him. Uh, a few months before he passed away, right. I got to go to his shop and everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tremendous guy. Right. Did a lot of work with uh, the Philadelphia Police Department, uh, international agencies. He was working on stuff with uh, with VDOC 
Are you involved with them at all? Uh, I, I am not. I was initially very, very friendly with Frank going back 30 years ago. So we worked on a couple of cases together. Uh, he was real good friends with a pathologist in Philadelphia at the time, and that's how I met uh, I met Frank. Frank was a really, really unique guy, but a really good good guy. He was. I, I thoroughly, He had a great story. He was uh, involved in the Cuban Missile Crisis. I didn't. No one really knew that it was part of the the interview as it came up, and I really got a chance to learn a lot about him. Came away with a tremendous amount of respect. Mm-hmm. Um, have we lost the war on drugs, Mike? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, you know what the big drug today is. You know, I now hear people talk about legalizing marijuana and all this kind of stuff. Uh, I, I always look at where have I been, what have I done? Okay, 50 years later, I was a young cop in the narcotics squad in Philadelphia. I was on, undercover for a period of time, and I never met a heroin addict, which we see inundated in our society today, especially along the east coast of the United States, from Maine to Maine to Florida. Heroin is a major, major problem. And I've never met a heroin addict yet that didn't start on, on uh, marijuana when I was on the street. Never. never. So you'll call it a gateway drug? I, it's, I, I called it a gateway drug. It is a gateway drug. And now, does that mean everybody that smokes a joint is going to be a heroin addict? No. But when I, when I interview or debrief heroin addicts or somebody that's stealing drugs or something like that. Marijuana always comes up as their gateway drug. Um, I think that if we started, if we, once we start legalizing marijuana, then it's going to be legalizing heroin, then it's going to be legalizing cocaine, and we're going to have a society of zombies is what we're going to have. That's and, interesting. And, and that's what I see. That's what I see. And you've been out there working, the, you know, doing this for, for 50 years. I, so. You know, I still go on these raids. Yeah. I mean, I go yeah. into these houses. I mean, I see what it is, and that's a, that's a sad commentary. I mean, it really, really is a sad. You walk in, you say, these kids, these people, they, they ain't got a shot. They don't have a chance. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. It's not funny. It's not the word I want to use. But that's what I see sometimes when I've been around people in those situations. It's the kids because it's going to become repetitive. Right. It's just one more cycle. And if they're so innocent, and they don't even realize at that moment that they're trapped. They're done for the most part. Right. You know, chances are. Right. And uh, uh, you know, it's it's devastating. We've become a society, I think, further apart when it comes to the poor, the working poor, compared to the middle class or the upper middle class. I there's just a big divide there. Right. And. Uh, I guess that's up to the politicians to figure that one out. Maybe they should listen more to the people who are walking the streets who've done this. I mean, you could have been mayor of Philadelphia. You do realize that, right? <laughs> I mean, you could have done that. No, seriously. I, I thought about this the other night, um, actually when I finished up my workout, and I want to get into your working out in a moment. I thought to myself, would he have been a good mayor prior to becoming the chief of police in Middleton? Because you didn't have the admin skills at this right, point. Right, Would you just have been this straightforward, almost a Frank Rizzo type? Or would you be a much better mayor today because, you know, people might say yes, because you've tempered, you've grown, you've done this, you've done that. Maybe taking some of the edge off. I like the edgy Mike Chitwood. So I'm asking you, what do you think you'd have been a better mayor now? <laughs> <laughs> I think I would be better anything now because of life experience. I think life experience teaches us all to be much better people. I really do. And your hope and pray is that it does teach you to be better and not worse, you know. But in my in my particular case, uh, the people that I surrounded myself with, the life experiences that I've had, I think makes me a much more compassionate, much more learned person, but I'm still not the fi- I'm still not afraid to fire a rocket. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the 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 politicians, the political structure, especially out here in Upper Darby, they're very very supportive, and they they allow me to to do to do some of the pushing the envelope, if you will, uh, that I do. But it's all about. I mean, I got nothing to gain. I mean, you know. I don't want to be a politician. I don't want to be governor. I don't want to be a state congressman or a state representative. 
I, I want to be the best police chief that I can possibly be for as long as I can do it. And, you know, there's no, to my knowledge, there's no end in sight. So, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, just keep on going. Working out. I mean, they've got some great pictures of you in uh, the Philadelphia Daily News. I remember seeing it a few years ago. You're doing uh, incline presses. Uh, you know, like I've been a gym rat for, God, uh, 40 years now, 30 years now. So I'm right there with you. So I'm going to ask you, has this been your go-to safe place all these years to get away from your work, to get away from the stress of it? I mean, there's always a little vanity involved. I admit to that. But for you, this has been... A lot more than just keeping yourself in shape and vanity. This has been your life, protecting your life, protecting your fellow officers. But in the end, is it the go-to place for Mike Chitwood just to escape? It is. It is. I mean, I start my day out early. I'm usually up 3, 30, 4 o'clock. I'm usually in the gym by 4, 15. Uh, this morning I slept in, so I was in the gym at 5.30. <laughs> but uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's good to get away. It's nice to talk to different people from all parts of the community. I mean, uh, uh, it's, it's a kind of an interesting dynamic. You run into a lot of, you run into a doctor, you run into a, yeah. somebody who's a laborer, you run into an electrician. And everybody, you know, is, uh, you know, especially early in the morning, I mean, you're not out there other than to work out. Yep. So it's, it, it is a stress. I mean, you know, obviously vanity plays a important yeah. role in it. But, you know, I love to be able to be in shape when I go out on these raids and, like, run up steps or I'm out supporting officers or I'm out speaking at night or whatever I'm doing. That helps me, I think, physically and mentally handle whatever the issues are. No, I agree 100. percent And I think going to the gym is a is a cross section of American people, like you said. Like you're going to meet, you've got you could have a doctor spotting a bricklayer right. in the gym. You can uh, your conversations, everything. Everyone seems to bond around that, uh, especially men. It's a it's definitely a man's environment in that right. regards. Right. And I've always been able to find that as a as a safe haven. And I know you've pushed that. At every level you've, that you've been a cop at, all the way up to being superintendent now at Upper Darby, to push your officers to get into a good training regiment. Absolutely. I mean, it's definitely, it's in their best interest. Uh, it's, it should be part of your life. I mean, it's an ongoing part of everybody's life. It should be, and I'm, I'm a firm believer in it. You know, and I, and I, you know, I can remember when I was a young cop and I had worked uh, undercover, and I was up to like 220 pounds, but it was all like booze and eating <laughs> steak dinners at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning in downtown Philadelphia, you know, and all these after-hour clubs and all that kind of stuff. And then one day I, somebody said to me, I think I was like 26, 27 years old, you're not going to live to be 40. And I thought to myself, you know what, they're probably right. So I started taking care of myself. It took a while to, to get to where I wanted to be, and now it's it's just part of my life. And I, and, I, and I couldn't agree with you more. I'm right there with you. In the last few minutes we got, Mike, I want to talk to you about where we stand today with respect to police officers. What we've seen happen this past summer out in St. Louis, uh, other places. What, what do the people need to know about a cop, male or female? What do we need to know in, about what's inside you, why you're doing this job? My thought is, my thoughts are as follows. And I said this earlier on in the show. People go into this profession because they care about their community. They care about their fellow man. They want to help. They want to help right the wrongs that are occurring. Overwhelmingly. Overwhelmingly. Do we make mistakes? Absolutely. Are there some rogue police officers? Absolutely. But by far and large, the majority of men and women that come into this profession do it because they care. The second thing, and I totally, totally reject when I saw what these throngs of whoever, protesters, whatever you, however you want to term, determine, the, to, to talk about police officers being racist and police officers being brutal. That's totally, totally rejected in any realm of Mike Chitwood's world. Again, we make mistakes, and if, and if we can train our officers better, I'm all for it. If we can hire more people of color into our policing ranks, I'm all for it. I want the best. 
regardless of what they what their socioeconomic and or ethnic status would be or even their sexual orientation I want the best but uh, I'm more for making us better but that's what people have to understand that the police are not the enemy you know probably during the course of a day there's millions of calls to 911 across the country in our in our United States now imagine if they didn't have the men and women in policing to answer those 911 calls. What about the child in distress or the victim of a crime or you know just the fact that you show up and you read to kids, you know? I mean, uh, yesterday we were at the at one of the schools and we had a 5th grade lunch and we six or seven of us walked in. The kids, the kids, 5th grade all stood up and gave us a standing ovation. You know, today was yesterday was Blue Day in a particular school in Upper Darby. So I mean, you know, those are the types of things that people got to realize. I mean, we hire from the human race. We're human beings, just like everybody else, <laughs> except we have this uh, enormous power, uh, you know, to take a life or save a life. Uh, and hopefully, when you take a life, you're right when you do it. I think it's tremendous. I. Trying to fit everything in an hour with you, believe it or not, was not easy. And I only got to touch on different aspects because I wanted my listeners to go and find the book to learn more about you. I wanted to give a, a nice overview of who you are. But in the future, if it's okay with you, I'd like to call on you again. And I'd like to really get in-depth into police tactics, uh, what you specifically look for in an officer, male or female, uh, just everything to do with being a cop in this day and age, because I really don't think people understand it. They see what they see on TV. Um, uh, I don't think a lot of people know someone who's an officer. I think there's kind of still a mystery to it, or they think they have the answer to it all. What are your thoughts there? I, I agree. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll hear my officers come back and they've testified on a sexual assault case or a homicide case. And the jurors will ask, well, where's the fingerprint and where's the DNA? Well, we don't have it. Well, then that means the guy didn't do it. Well, that's not true. You don't get a fingerprint and you don't get DNA. And that's all related to what people watch on TV. And I think that... Um, you know, in, in a lot of a lot of prosecution of some really really bad people who commit some horrible crimes, uh, you know, people walk away, and the perception of the men and women who are jurors, and we got the best system in the world, yeah. but the the perception is what they see on TV versus what really can happen. You know, is a it's a whole other thing. One of the things that we Ooh, do is, Mike, we, I got, I'm God, it's what I was afraid of. I got to cut you off because I'm going to roll right into the news. I'm going to shoot you an email later next week, and we can do another show, I hope, in the future. You've been listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my special guest was Mike Chipwood, Tough Cop. He has written the book, Tough Cop, Mike Chipwood, First the Scumbags. Find it. Mike, thank you so much. Thank you, John. I appreciate it very much.